Welcome to Pocketry Presents, the podcast for emerging and aspiring poets. I'm Indrani Pereira, founder of Pocketry, the home of unheard voices. I'm coming to you from the lands and waterways of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge that this is stolen land and its sovereignty has never been ceded. In this episode of Pocketry Presents, I'm interviewing an established poet about their creative process. Joining me today from Bundangara country is Dr. Mark Trudinik. Dr. Mark Trudinik is a celebrated poet, essayist, and teacher. His many works of poetry and prose include A Gathered Distance, Almost Everything I Know, Egret in a Ploughed Field, Blue Wren Cantos, Fire Diary, The Blue Plateau, and The Little Red Writing Book. For 25 years, he's taught poetry and expressive writing at the University of Sydney, where he was a poet in residence in 2018. His many honours include two of the world's foremost poetry prizes, the Montreal and the Cardiff. His is a bold, big-thinking poetry, Sir Andrew Motion has written, in which ancient themes, especially the theme of our human relationship with landscape, are recast and rekindled. Judith Breveridge has called him one of our great poets of place. In 2020, Trudinik was awarded the Order of Australia Medal for Services to Literature and Education. Welcome, Mark. I'm so glad you could join me today. Glad to be here, Andrani. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought we'll just get straight into it with the first question about your creative process. And I'm curious to know where you write. Is it at home, in the park, on the bus? I tend to write at home best, but over the years I've been able to write pretty much anywhere. I'm not very good at writing on aeroplanes, which is not a problem at the moment. (laughs) But (laughs) I guess my requirements are that there's not too much interference of the television variety or uh, the neighbours starting up some loud uh, implement or whatever. But, you know, once I've begun a work, once I'm into it, I tend to be able to sustain my concentration almost regardless of what's going on. And over the years I've written with, I've got five kids all up and they've been either with me or not with me at different, different times. And so as anybody who's a parent would know, that's a, that's a very particular kind of challenge because you're inclined to attend to their, their needs. But, um, you know, the muse, is, uh, the muse is a demanding mistress or master, as the case may be, and uh, the muse is pretty insistent on your paying attention to what, what he or she is asking of you. So that's been my experience. But here, right now, I'm sitting in the factory of writing at the moment. So I've tended to always have a place in the house. And it's my privilege to have been able to do that. But I've been fairly insistent on it. That's dedicated to the work that I do most of its writing and all the other kind of teaching around the edges of that. Yeah, as I say, I think what one thing I'd say, we'll come back to this, but a writer does need to learn to get a little less precious than they are at the beginning, uh, I think, and to take the opportunities that are presented if they're less than uh, perfect. But some people write in cafes, I know, and I, I don't find I write especially well. I'm. It's funny, you know, Seamus Heaney talks about, in this lovely essay, he speaks about the need for a poet to have an attic life. It's almost literal for me now because this is upstairs, my study, an attic life, uh, meaning a dedicated kind of space and a more a psychological space that's dedicated in a scholarly fashion to kind of the making of the work and a social life. And he was good at both. I quite like both. But when I'm in the social space, I'm in the social space. I I can't help but notice and pay attention and ask and, you know, get involved. So it's not when I'm at a cafe, I actually feel there's something in me that feels as though I'm being rude 
if I'm just lost completely in in my work. But mind you, I, I've managed to get work done there, notwithstanding that particular quibble. That's quite interesting. You like to keep the two separate, you know, your attic away from your, your cafe, for example. It seems as though I do. And so I find elements of the, the social really intrusive when they, you know, when it's been decided, at least in my mind, that this is an attic time and, uh, you know, things intrude. I get very grumpy and uh, I'm sure many writers are like this too. There is something very demanding. Uh, we put We put that demand on ourselves about the writing process and if I have something to do because I have a deadline or because the inspiration's on me to get I do find myself feeling righteously indignant when when <laughs> other people insist on things like I have to pay a bill or you know run someone down to the shops or whatever this is just not uh, not right yes they know <laughs> that it's attic time you can't possibly be doing those things right there right many <clears throat> many people have written about this of course and it's true and in, in a couple of my acknowledgements in the books of poetry that I've written including this most recent one, Walking Underwater, I've, I feel as though I need to always ask for forgiveness from those people. You know, people are attracted to creatives, but we are, in fact, not the best people in the world uh, to have a relationship with because we are, there is, Orwell writes about this too, actually, George Orwell, you know, there is, as you said before, something addictive and by nature obsessive about makers of things. And I reckon myself, no one is more obsessive no one needs to be uh, uh, more obsessive than the worker with words because everything wants to shout language down and you really do have to push the, the margins back, make a safe space for it. And in a fast, digital, noisy kind of world, that, that's harder and harder to do, uh, I think. So you, you need to find a way to, to honour the gift, I think, and keep the work coming and to make the space safe for the production of it. Mm, and what tools do you use to do that work? Do you, um, you know, use a computer or are you more of a pen and paper kind of a person, scraps, envelopes? <laughs> this is the drafting implement. Always a fountain pen. This is a lovely pen. I've fallen completely in love with this pen. <laughs> it's a Parker, 1950. It's got the date on it, and I forget. It's very hard to read. So USA, 1956, I think. But just you know, post-war, I find it very beautiful. But in fact, it was a very commonplace implement. It's just the ballpoint pen of the 1950s, really. But this one had survived. I I love to write notes and scribbles and draw things and uh, you know write stuff like like that that's nothing just a list of guys should have brought over here on my other desk i have my journal so i do tend to keep a, a notebook that looks a bit more special than just a, a notepad so that notepad i showed you is for to-do lists and people to call like sometimes first thoughts like something came to me today for a poem and i stuck it there but then if i don't have time to write the poem i transpose it into my journal and uh that's a, at the moment a black covered a four size pad and I write I write there I write drafts but I rarely write more than lines like if you go through the archive of my notebooks it's kind of interesting even to me I see scattered over you know 30 or 40 pages I see a line and then another one and then in between lots of other stuff but rarely the completely finished poem so to answer the rest of uh, your question right from the beginning of my writing life I've made finished work essay, book, and poem, 
with my fingers on the keyboard. And at first that was a, uh, uh, that was this version of this. <laughs> the typewriter. Typewriter there, folks, showing, showing the camera. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I don't use that much anymore. I have, I, I sit it there because I find it very beautiful and to remind me to take the kind of care with making once I started to make, you should. But, you know, the uh, Apple Mac came in in the 1980s and I was at university from 1980. So the first, my undergraduate degree in arts history in, entailed a, an honours thesis of, I think, 20,000 words, which doesn't seem all that, that long to me now. But of course, when you're only 20 something, that's enormous. And I did all of that through three or four drafts on a typewriter. So I got to be quite good uh, with touch typing. And so the transition to uh, first one of those Mac stacks I, I had, and then uh, the earliest laptop. So as soon as the laptops came in, which was I remember having one in the 1990s, early 1990s, 91, 92. And since then, though I have backup machines, I love the laptop because, of course, it's it's a typewriter with a memory, effectively. So, you know, it's quite, it's the same sort of shape. It's got the same kind of thing. And I quite like the business, the rhythm of making the words with my fingers on a, on a keyboard for me. I don't need a pencil or a pen for that. I love pencils and pens. But as I say, I, I, I have a hard job convincing myself that I'm actually making a poem or a finished piece of work unless my fingers are working a keyboard. It's very interesting. I've been caught out. I remember once being caught out on deadline. I used to write regularly for the Bulletin magazine, the wonderful Bulletin, and I had a deadline and uh, I really had to file as soon as I was on a flight from Sydney to Perth. So you've got four hours. I thought, great, but I'd forgotten to, I hadn't charged my laptop adequately. So an hour and a half in, bang, no more power. And I had to finish the piece with a pen on paper and I felt like a Gumby. I felt like somebody who was back in the fifth, fifth class, you know? but it came out just the same. It did. Of course, one can write actually in whatever circumstances one has, but psychologically I turn up to perform writing, as it were. For me, the performance mostly is actually at the keyboard and it's a lumpy, iterative kind of performance, but it is a bit performative. And so I'll have scribbled and thought and scratched around off the off the keyboard for quite a while but it's, when I hit the keyboard I'm ready to make a poem and it doesn't mean that I know exactly what it's going to be or how, how it's going to end up and it doesn't mean I don't edit it a lot which I know you're going to ask me about uh, later but I am in a sense finally after a good uh, deal of not writing in the last couple of months in Drani I did write something today and that's exactly what I what I did, such a delight just to get something something done. But the making for me is done with the fingers on a keyboard very largely. And I, I have I am a lapsed cellist, so my fingers are pretty strong. And uh, using my fingers for me in that way is connected to instrumentation and musicality, not to technicality. For me, the keyboard isn't chiefly something that connects psychologically to uh, you know, uncreative stuff. For me, it's mostly creative. Of course, I do everything else on there as well. I do have some friends who have separate dedicated laptops just for their uh, creative work, which is an idea I think is rather beautiful because I do sometimes feel as though the rest of it's contaminating the space. You know, <laughs> I need to get a deep clean uh, done. But hey, in the end, I'm not sufficiently well organized to have two, two different uh, machines. Mm. So it's just the one.
And you sort of alluded to the fact that you have a notebook that you do some scribblings in and maybe you'll have some ideas for a poem coming and you'll jot some notes down, but sure. you actually sit down to do the musicality of the writing at the keyboard. And when yeah. you do that sort of the... The, I guess the heavy lifting of the writing how do you write are you writing in sentences or in paragraphs do you does it, your work come out in verse how does it come <laughs> well if we're talking about poems let me put it this way I'm never not making sentences in, as well as other things by the time I'm at the keyboard I'm not just screen dumping. A lot of people write that way and that's that's fine for them. I, I can't work that way. My, my screen dump, my process of just the kind of relatively unconstrained throwing down of, of half-baked thoughts ha happens on pieces of paper um, wherever and in a slightly more organized fashion uh, in the journal. But as I say, when I'm on the keyboard, I'm attempting right from the beginning to make a finished thing. But of course, it doesn't, I know it doesn't work that way, but still I attempt it because I, I do, I've learned that at least for me, I need to do something more than scratch around in first draft. I, I aim quite high in my first draft and it makes it a bit more agonizing, but it means that it's like a, like I suppose the first draft is like a dress rehearsal in Drani, if I can put it that way. It's not just reading lines in the back room. I've made myself ready enough, but there's no audience yet. And so I can fool around and do it again, like we can do here tonight. If I if I swear too much or something, you can kind of cut it out and, and we can we can edit. But in in a sense, yeah, I, I'm I'd be much closer to like if you watched me today you would have seen me making lines and I realized fairly early on I was making couplets and I organized the first draft into couplets from the very beginning and I've gone back to it I actually just before dinner I so I began to fiddle so much with the first draft that I uh, saved that and opened uh, called it draft two and then began to make some more changes and it's a bit unfinished but yeah your question's a good one and I know my approach isn't like everyone else's and I I have a feeling it suits me very well, but I actually have a sneaking feeling that more people should uh, do it too. I read a lot of drafts. You see, the trouble is for people, once we've done, once we've uh, worked quite hard on the screen, on the keyboard, on the screen for a little while, it becomes hard to let go of what you've made. So I don't want to get too much rubbish down there first in case I get attached to it. So I do all that stuff. Often I delay a bit. Um, until it's almost too late if I've got a deadline um, to to get something begun. Until I'm fairly, I'm, I'm sure I could all I could rehearse not the poem, but I could rehearse a number of the lines for you by that stage. By the time I turn up to the uh, to the keyboard. And are you rehearsing those lines in your head, uh, or are you doing that on paper when before you're coming to? Oh, the... what I meant then was in you know in my head. If you really pressed yeah. me and said, "Come on, what are you going to write?" Yeah. Uh, I, I I could give you some of the lines, but I wouldn't be able to tell you where they belonged and uh, how they were linked. Because there's a thing. This is a very important thing. I think the the larger part of the poetry that poets make is what happens when they turn up to make it. Now, of course, we live our lives, we read our books, we rehearse, we scratch and, and so on. But uh, through the history of the making of poetry, the truth is uh, that you turn up at the page with something, but you never perform. Most people never perform 
anything even closely resembling what they had some idea they would perform. What you make is what comes to you in the moment of making as a response to the constraints and challenges of form, uh, in particular form and subject and any other ideas that are compelling uh, for this particular poem. And you had someone in my last masterclass, wonderful, like a world-class novelist actually, and Lloyd fought fiercely from start to finish against, against the idea of draft after draft in the poem and against the importance of the constraint of form because maybe it's because he's a novelist or maybe he's, it's because he's who he is. Uh, and in that respect, he's like many, many people. In my mind, he was making almost a fetish of the inspiration as if most of the task of the writer was to be faithful to the in inspiration. Well, maybe his inspirations come more fully formed than mine. I, I never get more than gestures and phrases and, and like they're powerful and I wouldn't write without inspiration. But uh, what I said to him in the end was, I think actually, as I said to you there before, a poem is what happens when I sit with the beginnings of something and a time limit and some constraint of form uh, and that I make it like the potter at the wheel. The poem that emerges is like the pot that emerges. Of course, the potter turns up with some ideas, but there has to be a fair bit of inspiration in the moment of, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like like jazz, um, oh. improv. A fair bit of improvisation on themes and ideas that you carry in, in response to the ideas of line length and form and shape and everything that become compelling to you also. Uh, in the making. So it's a very messy business, but there are some very organized uh, things, you know, in, in the midst of it, like the disciplines of care for original wording and freshness of image and not over explaining and musicality of language choice. I'm just thinking of all these things because I went back and changed a bunch of lines today because I had language that was okay. And actually, if it had been prose, most people would have gone, oh, it's a winner, but I'm going, not good enough. This is poetry, not good enough, too commonplace, too whatever. Uh, so that ties into a question that's probably a good one to ask you now then about whether or not you revise your poetry so you do that first draft that you're talking about and you're using some kind of form. And I'm, I know that you do like using form and the beauty of that cage to bring the words out and set that bird free. And do you then revise that first draft after you had your dress rehearsal? Such a messy process in, in running. Whenever I describe it as I'm about to describe it, I think that's not what you do. <laughs> it is a bit messy. But, you know, most of my published poems, so uh, we put them like the poems in a gathered distance like a gathered distance the title uh poem or that the habit of wings so there's one that's got i cannot remember that that poem ever did not have couplets but it it may have done if i search back in my files i'd probably find well by the time that poem was finished it was in to give you an idea it was in the habit of wings 10 i think it was 10 so that's 10 drafts mm -hmm. but doesn't mean I'm changing everything. By the time I'm up to draft three, normally, I've got the form uh, down and the changes after that point are incremental. You know, they're, they're, they're small, but of course they're massive in their effect on, on the poem and on me and on the reader. And even sometimes you go back and look at a poem and you go, oh, if only I changed the word each to any, like if only I'd had the the nows, you know, it's that kind of fussy. But when I say it's messy, it's because each of those drafts bleeds into each other uh, a little bit. It's not as clinical as I know I finished draft one. So I've just, for example, 
um, giving you that instance of what I've been working on today. And the one I've called, what what is, so the one I began to work on until I kind of, well, my daughter sent me a text and said, can, can you drop the dresses around that you bought me for my birthday so I can try them on? So, you know, ordinary life intervenes and I go, okay, okay. And I've got it to a certain point and left it. And then I went out and of course she wasn't there. And, and I went to the shops and I came back. And so then I opened it up again and progressed it through another couple of lines. But when I picked it up, when I came back, I called it draft two, but of course draft one's not completely finished. Mm-hmm. Actually, I haven't gone all the way to the end of the poem. In fact, at this stage, I've got three parts in the poem and I'm not at all sure I won't take it back to one because part one was the idea I've been carrying around in my head now for about a month. And the other part two and then part three came to me in the process that I'm describing. And I'm, you know, sometimes what comes to you at the potter's wheel, as it, as it were, is a good idea. And other times it's a dumb idea and you've got a, you know, time, time will tell. But so I'm calling that one draft two. By the end of tomorrow, I'll probably have it up to draft five because I'll finish it and then call it draft three. And then I'll go back and pay close attention to everything, really. But, you know, the things that really count, like have I have I told too much? Have I placed it well enough? Is there a bird in there? Actually, at this stage, there is no bird in that poem, Indrani. And as you would know, that's a big principle for me. So nothing in there just yet. <laughs> Plenty of leaves. It's about poppies and rain and weather and whatever else that is the thing that happened in part two was a reflection isn't it funny this probably happens to you so i'm in the middle of making the poem and something was going on on instagram darby hudson a guy i know was kind of reposting this interview that i've done and i kept looking at this thing and then for some reason my instagram showed me a photograph i'd taken of these same poppies at the same window but in autumn and the whole t- the, the point of this poem that i'm writing is how the brightness of the flower may- makes a winter of of the window winter of the window is the the, the thing that i'm playing with and then I, so then i go okay part 2 <laughs> the last time there were poppies in a glass in the same spot the 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 outside was giving the inside back so i had this idea about the uh, and then i had an idea about correspondence which is a beautiful way of talking about you know correspondence means what lovers send to each other but it also means the way that the yellow thing outside corresponds to is similar to so then i'm playing with that kind of uh, idea and then i got to a certain point and it became thematically about life corresponding with afterlife because of course flowers in a vase although they're still blooming and the leaves are falling it's the leaves on the tree that are the living things and the things you know so i i got that was a whole idea scape indrani that happened only because i was making a poem in a form and needing to work out where to stop and wondering sometimes i get anxious as I should not, but I get anxious that I've simply written a pretty poem that records some flowers in a glass. It's perfectly adequate for poetry, but something in me, something in in all of my background makes me believe that I haven't really fulfilled (laughs) the promise that I made at the beginning if I haven't, if, if some wisdom hasn't dawned on me. And mostly it does. And so then I feel as though mostly, you know, I should share a little bit of that. But then I start banging on too much about metaphysics. And so then draft three is all about 
start cutting that out and <laughs> giving it back to the flowers. So it's a messy kind of process, but then it gets very tidy because after draft three, I generally don't change the form much. Although there's a poem in my, there's a book I'm bringing out for my 60th birthday at the beginning of next year called A Beginner's Guide an apt enough title for a 60-year-old in Drani, I would have thought. But there's a poem in there called Break and Enter, also about a rose finding its way in through a crack in the glass of a cow shit I used to write in and blooming. And so it's a remarkable kind of, you know, thing. But I got that poem to about halfway through and then completely changed the form completely and put the foot, the end of the poem Writers do this kind of stuff, but even in formal structures, I, I, like other poets, will sometimes just go, I don't think that form is quite serving the content. Let me try something else. Uh, another one I wrote about that time too, I often use in training, uh, whose name I'm forgetting. Uh, it'll come back to me. I got some way in, started very free verse. So it was a rare instance for me of just kind of sticking it down in a narrow column of text and figuring out later. And I looked at that and I just went, yuck. You know, there's just, I've completely not done justice to the beauty that was wanting to get itself said. So then I find a form and I found a certain form and then I lost faith in it and realized I had roughly enough lines to make it a sonnet. It is a kind of sonnet of a, of a poem. But then I thought, no, the sonnet felt too formal. And this is keeping most of the words the same too, you see, Indrani. It's a, it's a funny thing. And so then I went back to another version of what I'd begun with. So there will often be some fiddling around in the stages, and sometimes they're, they're about form. Mostly they're about language, ideation, uh, musicality of language, you know, punctuation even. Sometimes I sweat for days on whether it should be dashes or uh, commas or parentheses or... Uh, you know, something else. So that's the kind of process. And I I, I think, in fact, I, I said before, the larger part of what a poem is, is what happens at the potter's wheel. But actually, that might be 60% of it. The other 40% is what happens in the drafts. And it matters a great deal that we bother, that we pay that kind of attention and, and care to it. I know myself that it's out of that process that I get the sometimes refinement of the work. Sometimes I look at a poem even of mine and go, I don't know how I managed to get that said. And when I think back, it's because of the hard yards. It's because of interrogating the adequacy of my uh, phrasing uh, and not giving up, not giving up too soon. I guess over time I've learned, I think I've learned partly by necessity, to be honest, to do more of that work in the first and second draft because I have more deadlines now and I leave everything too late. <laughs> so I have to, like, I have to get it done in the second draft. Can I just ask you a question? How do you know when the poem is done? Got it. Another question here about uh, tips for, uh, for younger writers for yeah. revising and drawing. It's a bit connected here. Part of the answer is hunch. So the one I'm talking about writing today is I'm still not sure. One of the reasons I'm not sure is because I didn't set myself any exacting constraint. I just thought, I thought it was going to be about 10 or 12 lines and couplets came to mind and I'm sticking to that. Then, as I say, I got all of the first inspiration stuff done in the 12 lines, but there was clearly more to say. So I knew then that the poem wasn't finished because I felt the urge uh, of the, the pressure of sayable things, things wanting to be said and needing it to be in this poem. So I went on. I'll know when that poem's done. Like for, for, for one thing, I know the poem isn't finished because at this stage, its last line finishes halfway across a line. So that's not finished. For me, that's a sign that 
that it's still ragged and that I haven't resolved uh, a problem. The larger part of the answer to the question is you learn as much as you can about what I'll call poetics, about the craft, and in particular about poetic forms, so that you can look at your own work and apply a measure of the general adequacy of things, but also whether or not you've uh, chosen the right form for the right content by knowing some things about what the choices are. Like if you don't know anything more than most beginner poets know, which is just a bunch of free verse and scared to death of everything else that's, that's you know, of the 30,000 odd forms that there are out there. If you don't know much about anything else, it really is hard to know when your poem is finished beyond feeling as though, well, I've covered my material and then also the other things that came to mind. So a free verse poem that's not constrained by any particular uh, word length or, or line length can go on forever, you know, or not. It is it is quite hard to know when, you, when you're done there. Uh, and I hear a lot of poems, actually, particularly in performance, that could have done with being cut in half because they've got it all said and then they say it all, all again. Well, we're all at risk of doing that. But form will help. Like, how do I know when I'm finished a sonnet? Well, because the sonnet has 14 lines. And when I've written 14 good lines, I'm done. And some other kind of rules. So form can actually help. Haiku, Sijo, the other forms that we've talked yeah. about. You know, yeah. you're because you know what, what's entailed in making one of those things, then you know when you're there. How do you know the line is good then? So you've met the requirements of the form. You've got like your your syllables are right or your meter, you know, you've got the rhyme. Whatever the form is requiring you to do, you've done. But how do you know the line itself is good? Well, you'll be done at that point probably because unless you've just stuck any old words in to make the rhythm, then you'll have also, you'll have used the rhythm and the constraint to help you choose words that are uh, more adequate. Many of the changes I was making in second and third draft today were because I needed to keep the utterance within the constraints of the line length. And so I'm not allowed, certain words suggested themselves and I'm ruling them out because they're too long because they'll take me over the, over the limit. You're running a lot of measures at once. One is, what does it look like? Does it look pleasing to me? Yes, it does. So then you go in and, and you look inside and you go, what looks pleasing, but, you know, the lines aren't, too many of these lines are not adequate or I'm losing my way with the idea or there's a repetition or whatever. So, again, it's applying the craft, what I meant more broadly by poetics than Indrani, not just how many beats per line and how many lines, uh, but also have I written shapely phrases? Do they please me in the way, as William Faulkner says, do my phrases, uh, enough of my phrases and lines please me in the way that that beautiful uh, thing, that beautiful object on my desk, the, the Hindu goddess or that tree outside my window pleases me. Does my writing please me in a similar way? I do that. And, and, and music is a reference point for me. There is a time when you're way too close to the poem for days, I find, to to be certain. But I've learned over time, like, like any other person who sticks at something for long enough, you do learn to make judgments and they're better judgments than you used to, to make. You just know more. And I've learned to be able to assess whether a work is adequate or even quite fine, even when I'm not feeling very good about it, because I can make technical judgments. Mm. A little bit like the way when I've had to judge competitions, I don't think it's okay for judges just to choose poems in forms 
and uh, uh, schools of poetic writing that they happen to like. In other words, I think we should give everyone a fair go, but it is perfectly okay for a judge of a prize to ask questions about the merit, the technical craft merit, intellectual merit, and other kind of uh, things. And you can learn a lot about, about technique so that you can make an assessment of somebody else's poem that you either, one, don't understand fully or don't like very much, or it's another, you know, damn poem without a bird in it, or banging the drum of identity too hard, or something like that. But you can school yourself to go, yes, but that's my taste at work right now. So let me put my taste over there. Is it a well-made thing? So you can learn. I can I can make judgments about my own work, I think, much better than I used to be able to of that uh, kind. But over time, over time, it will, will dawn on you. And over time means even right up until works are published. There's a poem in Walking Underwater called Resilience, and it barely made the book. You know, something made me put that poem in I honored the moment of its making more because it was a poem that saved almost saved my life I needed to make it at the time and talk my like it sounds so calm when you read the poem but I was not calm <laughs> I was nowhere near calm making it and uh, so I think I was honoring that but just in the lead up to the publication of the book we put a few of the poems out uh, on on Facebook that particular poem got way more responses than any of my other poems which I hope that have won prizes or you know like I, I I love them more and it made that made me that bit of feedback made me go back to the poem uh, and I I can I still have my reservations about it <laughs> which are technical and it's a little repetitive toward the end and a little bit uh, a little bit cheesy possibly <laughs> this is my own judgment but for somebody who's struggling with life it is a very it's a hopeful uh courageous kind of courage inducing uh kind of poem and actually it's craft at the level of the iambics and the i think it's a sonnet from memory is good and and strong but sometimes there is something in your work that you didn't put there it comes through you and, and I think also, too, you know, the reader completes your work as well. So they bring their own experiences to your work and they complete your work also. So it's, a, it's an exchange. That's true. Although I have been bound to say to some, some people have given me readings of my poems and I've just gone, no. <laughs> I mean, you're entitled to think, but that's nowhere near anything that I had in mind and I, I don't think that's in the poem. On the other hand, there have been people who've, spoken to me about poems that I've made and I thought oh yeah that's true that's probably that's pro that's that's probably in there so yes yes it's true but we are as readers also I think obliged to read humbly if I can put it that way I don't think we read as humbly as we should I think we should go wow even just to get that line written is a fabulous achievement it's a human achievement and I wonder where Indrani's going with this. And like we read our lives onto poems way too quickly and our aesthetics without stopping to think that possibly someone knows not necessarily more than we do, but something other than than we do. And we should look for it, I think, in right. a poem and look to find the kind of connections that, that it might make to things that we know and love. I like that idea that the poem can be a door that opens, that takes you to other lands you may not have visited before. That's yeah. a nice way to look at, at the, the poem, I think. I was also wanting to ask you some more prosaic questions. I'm, I've really enjoyed hearing what you've been talking about. You alluded to earlier that you hadn't written for a while. So I was wanting to ask you about yeah. writer's block and how oh, yeah. you deal with writer's block. 
I deal with it by getting incredibly grumpy. <laughs> and I find it's, it's awful when, and every time, I mean, I don't look, I don't know whether I'd call it writer's block. I suppose I've always, I've always managed to, to get through a stage when I felt as though I was uninspired. Uh, and when I didn't feel the compulsion, like I've mostly felt through most of my years, I felt excited to get to the page and to get something said, or, and I'll see many of my prompts come from lived experience, emotions, phenomena in the world, uh, reading that kind of stuff. And they'll often prompt a response and and I'll really want to be writing. But there have been some times in the last six months has been one of those times when I think I'm actually, I've written a lot in my journal, maybe more than when I'm productive on the page, but I simply haven't had time. I mean, we don't at, at certain certain points. I've I've gotten very busy with the work around writing and around, you know, marketing my uh, masterclass and running the masterclass and mentoring. I, I finally, I, I'm terrible with these bureaucratic things. I probably have, I think I, I suddenly panicked the other day and thought, you know, I've got 30 clients. I think I have 30 uh, mentees. That is a lot. And I've been carrying them in my head. That's madness, right? And so then I keep panicking every time one of them writes and says, oh, we're still meeting tomorrow. And I'm going, oh, tomorrow I've got to read my stuff. So I'm getting, you know, I've always managed. I back myself all through my, my my life. I've tended to, I've got a good memory. I get stuff done. But there's simply any time I sit, have sat in the last six months with the inclination to write and the urge to get something done, to break the drought, there's just been too much urgency Partly this is a psychological challenge for me because in my makeup, I'm both, uh, I have implacable standards. This is one of those Oprah Winfrey measures, but one of my measures, and it's right, I think is implacable standards for myself chiefly. But the other one is I'm, I'm oriented toward others' needs. So how's that going to work? <laughs> That's going to mean the risk is that you end up dedicating a fair bit more than possibly you need to on other people's urgencies. And I have a little trouble putting up the boundaries and making enough time. I mean, as a younger person, I've been able simply to get my work done when everything else was finished, the kids were in bed and you know, the, the urgency was, 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 oh, the emergency was over, but you know, you get tired as you, as you age. And I've just got so mostly my block in the last little while has been has been that in a funny kind of way though it's also been a degree of contentment because you know I, I not that I've solved all the problems in my life but um, they're less pressing and poetry and making have always been means of solving coming to terms deepening fathoming things and so also you know at a certain point I'm up to twenty books now and I've written a lot of poems and. I've said a lot of things <laughs> and I set myself, uh, you know, a fairly high standard that says I shouldn't plagiarize myself, you know, so there are thoughts that are precious to me that I think I've, I've maybe written about maybe enough for, for now or for me, I can't, I will find them constantly. I know I'll find all those critical ideas embodied in life and moments forever because that's the way it goes. But I am a bit conscious of, of that. But mostly it's just been too much work. So how I deal with it in the end is just by buying some time, like just carving some time out from the schedule and telling, letting people know that actually I'm I'm away from the desk for. Uh, generally, I generally even 
two days or three days is enough uh, for me to begin to just get something done. And then it's like I get momentum back. And so I think today might have been a good day for me in that respect, because I, I had a tiny something fell over and I had a bit of space and I got something begun. And so again, in my life, I've convinced myself that I can write poetry. <laughs> And then it becomes easier just to kind of, you know, pick it up and, um, and, and do it again. So buying some time, forcing is one of the other things I do, or getting a good friend to force me. That's been very useful. I have a good friend, Steve Armstrong, who when I was struggling with this last time last year, he said, Mark, you can write better than the rest of us standing on your head. Write something tonight and send it to me tomorrow. And so I did. And then I wrote four of them, you know. So um, good friends and asking for help. I didn't realize I was asking for that advice, but I guess I, I guess I was. Now, other people join things. Like a lot of people come to the classes I teach because the structure, I think, you know, on the schedule, write a poem or two or three every week and look how much you made over the course of the masterclass yourself and the inspiration of, of other people. The other thing I'd add to the list is reading. I know that I've not been reading very well whenever I'm not writing uh, as much uh, or as happily as I'd like. So reading is a real spark for me. I get inspired uh, challenged. And even there's a competitive streak in me that goes, wow, that's a great line. Uh, let me see if I can do something better, you know, yeah. or yeah, all of the, all of those are things that I, I do to get through the harm, but it will happen from time to time. The only other thing to say is that sometimes you just have to say, this is not a time. This is not a time for making yeah. uh, and yeah. uh, right up, up until a certain point when it becomes, you know, desperate. That is true. Sometimes like, I, I don't know what that means. Like I, 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 I think I drive at certain points, I would drive myself mad if I began something because the two or three hours at least that I would need to stop and tool up and you know get get begun the whole three hours I'd be thinking about the lecture I've got to write or the the other thing I've I've got to do so I've learned to just go there are certain times when uh, that are not apt for creativity and what I do sometimes then is scribble things like use the journal a bit to, to get ideas down or phrases or or anything just so that the thing won't escape and as I say in a busy year like this year I filled that journal because I've begun I look I, I say I'm not writing but I've probably written the beginnings uh, of you know say 30 or 40 poems in the journal over there and I go that's great I feel really good I've got that begun bang you know I'm not I'll get back to about half of those I think when when the time comes Thank you for sharing all of that. It's really good to hear. And I think it's good for people who are starting out and you know, anywhere on their journey to hear about how other people deal with those things. And I like that idea that you're saying that, you know, sometimes it's just okay to go, now's not the time to write because yeah. There's, yeah. there's other parts of life and, you know, you don't always have that space or that time to write. And it's quite reassuring to, to hear that, I think, from another poet, you know, that you can be kind to yourself and just go, well, it'll come right. back. And that, that's, that second bit's the bit that it's hard to convince yourself about. But it will come back. And absolutely, well, why would it go away? <laughs> but we fear that it will. But yeah, I like your term there, Indrani. It's kindness. You need, you need to learn because we're fierce. You have to be a bit fierce, actually, to make things you do with other people and with yourself. You have to have very exacting standards. But uh, you need to balance that out uh, with some kindness. Yes, definitely. And I think that's a beautiful note to end this episode on. And... Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your creative process, Mark. It was great to hear your insights and your knowledge. Uh, thanks, Indrani. It's a pleasure.
And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Mark's latest book is his fourth collection, Walking Underwater, just published by Pitt Street Poetry in May 2021. And his fifth collection, A Beginner's Guide, will appear in January 2022 from Birdfish to coincide with his 60th birthday. If you'd like to read some of Mark's books, you can find out about them on his website, www.marktradinic.com. And to find out more about Pocketry, the home of unheard voices, visit www.pocketry.com.au and happy writing.